inspire. She's already laughing at me. Welcome back to Starting Now. I'm your host, Jeff Sayers. This is the show where I talk to entrepreneurs and creatives of all types to reveal the unexpected paths to where they are today. Today, my guest is Erin Blaisdell. And you're just waiting to say something over there. I just feel it. (laughs) I got the giggles. I know. Well, this is the second time this is... uh, I'm doing this intro because for some reason the switcher stopped working. But this is a great conversation. Erin is a uh, professor, specifically... It where is it at? This UCLA. Is, I am. I know UCLA, but oh. <laughs> I was going to say what other thing? Um, comparative psychology and the comparative cognition lab is uh, where he works at UCLA. But we talk about everything. We talk about the ancestral health uh, society, which is all all about uh, the ancestral health diet and paleo. We talk about pigeons and rats and. Uh, hermit crabs and cognition and we dive into the science of a lot of things we dive into his story how he how he became a professor how he found uh academia as being his passion in life and where he wanted to go with things i mean this is a wide ranging conversation i so want to just keep going and talk about so many things that he has experienced and what he's working on um, and at the end, there's even an NFT project related to pigeons doing art, cognitive uh, studies and research. Anyway, this is a huge intro, but as she laughs at me again, I know. <laughs> Without further ado, my conversation with Aaron Blaisdell. Yeah, for sure. Have you considered yourself an entrepreneur sort of uh, from a young age? No, actually, from a young age, no, not at all. Not at all. I was more... My dream jobs when I was a kid would have been actually something I flirted with in college of being a paleontologist, you know, going on a fossil dig and digging up dinosaur bones or working at a zoo. I loved animals. So I always thought, you know, working at a zoo, working with animals, especially all the different kinds of animals would have been a lot of fun. And then the other uh, fantasy I had when I was a kid about my career would be owning owning a coffee shop that was also a bookstore that only opened for breakfast and lunch. And so you get up, you have coffee, you're serving people coffee, you're reading books, and then you close up and close down after lunch and then you know, go off and play in the park or something. Uh-huh. So it com- combines kind of my animals and nature love and then my bookish side, which I love reading books and having coffee. Yeah. I mean, I all of that speaks to me so much. I mean, from the animals to the, the coffee shop, like uh, my girlfriend Amara actually does like the production live. I don't know if you can see her hand waving in there, but she does like camera cuts oh, and my. things. And we had talked about doing like a uh, coffee shop in like a VW bus and how fun that would be Ooh. to be out, like park it by the beach, you know, like I, I'm in Chicago, we're in Chicago, but like clearly somewhere else <laughs> like LA. I know it'd be really nice. Just yeah, like Venice, Santa Monica, kind of somewhere around there. Have it parked, head out to the beach for yeah. a little bit. Like in the morning, you're serving coffee. There's something just magical about that freedom and that connection with people too, because we yes. we lose that. Yeah, there's a farmer's market here, the, the Mar Vista Farmer's Market, which is right between Venice and Culver City. I live in Culver City and I go to them on some Sundays. And there are a couple of coffee shops, one in particular, run by a friend of mine named Eric. His name is Eric, and he's now has a brick and mortar shop. But he started out as going to the different, um, what should we call it, the, the farmer's markets here in the LA area and sourcing his beans, 
you know, flying down to Central America, South America, finding places, finding growers, sourcing the beans, bringing them back. He roasts them and sells them. And then both that love of coffee and that love of connection with people was, I could see he loved it. He loved it. It seems like a great life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just, it seems fun. It seems so uh, enticing for sure. And yeah. So was that something you had thought about further? Because you laughed in a way that like having that be something that was on your mind from a young age. Was it, was there a, a moment where you're like, no, that's not the path. I want to go really down the academic route. Yeah, I guess I laughed because there was so weird juxtapositions <laughs> being a zoo or paleontologist person and in a coffee shop bookstore. They seem kind of like <laughs> extreme, odd, you know, like you can't really do both. So weird two directions. Uh, but the, what got me into academia, I guess, was when I went to college, I went to Stony Brook, uh, SUNY Stony Brook on Long Island. Um, I fell in love with it. I just, college was like, oh my God, I found my place. I found where it's all about kind of studying, but it's also about a lot of exploration. And I did a lot of exploration in various directions in college um, that really just not it didn't change who i was but it opened up this possible space of who i could be and and what i could add to who i already was and so i just i leaned into college so much i loved it so much i guess that's why i became a grad student and i did a postdoc and then i'm a professor it means i could stay in college for the rest of my life <laughs> <laughs> i like so I that. that yeah i just fell into it basically uh-huh what were some of the um ways that you were expanding like what were some of the the threads maybe that you were pulling at that point some of it was the working in labs working i worked had a chance to work in a primate lab with living primates and that's what really changed me from initially thinking to do paleontology studying the fossils of dead animals to studying the minds of living animals um was working in a in that primate lab um the other things were just the social outlets i really got to embrace kind of hanging out with people going to those kind of parties. I never was a partier in high school. Uh, so I, that's where I kind of blossomed as like more social, embrace that social side, uh, experimenting with, you know, the some of the psychedelics uh, mm -hmm. and, and with really good experiences with those that were very interesting. Um, and then also just, I started to hang out with graduate students a lot because I was really focused on the academics. I really enjoyed, and I was going into anthropology a physical anthropology, a study of human evolution, primate evolution, both living and, and extinct. And I think that there was, there was a small major at, at Stony Brook, and there weren't, um, and, and so the classes were pretty small in terms of the number of students. I might be in a class with like 15 students, whereas a psych major might be in a class with 120 students. So I got to know the faculty. I got to know the graduate students who were TAing the classes. And so I started hanging out with them as well and going to their parties uh, and, and seeing the life of a grad student. So I, and, and I started to just get a glimpse of that world and how interesting and fun they were having, both between what it was like to, it's kind of like being an apprentice. You're apprenticing with a master in some interesting topic that you love. And so I saw them getting so much enjoyment out of that intellectually and socially and everything that I just kind of realized that's what I wanted to do. And so I think those different experiences, there's lots of different ones, but they all kind of fed the same idea that being open-minded, exploratory, and intellectual, but not snobbishly so, but more like just out of a curiosity for 
the natural world and how it works and having fun playing with people who also are curious about that. Yeah, I mean, academics. yeah, it comes through. Like you clearly have a passion for it. It's like, I can, just, I can see it on your face. Like you're excited, like recounting that, which is awesome. Like so few people have found that, it feels like. You know, you sort of get your job, sit there nine hours a day, 40 hours a week, whatever, and you just get on that, that treadmill. But you found the thing, like that area with the flexibility um, that that really brings you brings you alive, which is awesome. Like I love seeing that and seeing that in someone. In terms of apprenticeship, which I think is a wonderful point, like you you sort of saw that when you were in school. How has maybe apprenticeship has it played a role in your uh, in your career at all? Like moving along. Well, it certainly did as a graduate student. So I went to SUNY Binghamton, another of the SUNY schools, in, uh, and that one's in upstate New York. And I did a, a four-year PhD in a rat lab studying learning, memory, and cognition in rats, which is one of the things I now do at UCLA. And the model of being a PhD student is really a, in a good, um, if it works out right, it's a master apprentice model. You're in, I was in a lab, there were three other grad students at the time I arrived, and then some left, graduated, and then others came in um, during that time. So there's always this kind of like small moving group of like three or four grad students, maybe a postdoc, and maybe half a dozen undergraduates who are also working in the lab, and then the, the PI, the, the primary um, PI. I'm blanking on what the term means. It's uh, the, the primary investigator. Okay. <laughs> That's what we call it. The professor, right? Uh-huh. So, uh, and so we are like a small, it's like, there's a couple ways. It's like an apprenticeship. One, it's a small team of people solving interesting problems, like trying to do experiments to study, understand more about the psychology, psychological processes in whatever you're studying. That For us, that's what it was, psychological processes in rats. Um, and so it's, I was both like learning from the older grad students. They were mentoring me as grad students. And my uh, Ralph Miller, who was my uh, PhD mentor, the, the professor, was truly a mentor and friend. And we're still friends to this day. And it's just like he had accumulated so much knowledge and he had such an understanding and a, and a, of how to d- extract this knowledge from the mind of the rat. Okay. And how you write papers, how you, you know, explain these uh, to the, to your world, to the audience, um, both writing and speaking, all the things of doing science of the actual process of being in a lab and doing the science. He was a master at it. So I got to watch it. I got to learn from him. He gave me lots of feedback. Uh, We worked together and with the other students, it was just, you're embedded in this really excellent um it's like an incubator in a way um you're embedded in this incubator with somebody who's at the top of their game and you're learning from them and they're trying to lift all of you all the all the people working with him up um to be like you know do this also um so it's it was just a rewarding process and i try now uh to implement that as uh, a pi myself running my own lab to to be there for my students and to both give them the freedom to run with their interest in the lab to the extent they can, and at the same time to help guide their journey um, with my knowledge and experience, and but also through friendship and learning together. 
and we're collaborators. One time I remember uh, early on, I was introducing somebody to Ralph Miller and I said, oh, here's my boss, Ralph. Uh, and and Ralph turned to me and says, I'm not your boss. I'm a colleague. I'm a friend. And so I, 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 that stuck with me, that that meant that mindset, that mentality. Yeah. Do you then do you find yourself then sort of emulating that specific like you become closer, I would assume, just taking that approach? Yes, very much so. Very much so. My students, uh, even the undergrads work in my lab, I asked them to be on a first name basis with me. That's what Ralph had also done. Oh, and Bob Cook, who is my postdoc mentor, very similar type of experience at, at Tufts University outside of Boston, where I learned how to work with pigeons. Uh, same kind of thing. He was very informal. Some people are more formal, but he and Bob and Ralph were both more informal. Anybody working in the lab, call him Bob, call him Ralph. And could just, you know, shoot the shit with each other about anything, really. And mm-hmm. and I, that was such a rewarding relationship that I do approach my role the same way. Nice. Yeah, I want to dive into the rats, pigeons, and hermit crabs. But first, I wanted to ask sort of a broad question. What makes for an interesting problem to solve? Because you mentioned problem solving. That speaks mm-hmm. to me innately. Like, that's if I say what I do, it's problem solving. And it doesn't matter if it's entrepreneurship or development or whatever. But what what in your mind makes an interesting problem? Well, that's a good question, actually. I guess all of the different types of problems academically, like in my research that I've faced, it's really boils down to something's interesting. I don't know the answer. Why is something the way it is? Um, but I might have an idea about uh, you know, a thought, a hypothesis about why it might be the way it is. And it might even be a particularly interesting hypothesis. And so I think what makes problem that that's what defines the my approach to problem solving is that the problems that present themselves are the ones that are they're at the edge of the boundary of our knowledge. Right. And so we're we're getting close to that edge with the prior knowledge we've accumulated reading other people's research. And then we realize, hmm. We don't know why this works the way it does, but you might have this like insight about, ah, you know, there's this theory out there. There's this idea that's an analogy to something else I know that suggests an insight into why something is the way it is. And we can design an experiment with like an experimental group and a control group or something that actually can, if it goes, works correctly, it'll provide an answer, some insight, maybe not the complete story but we're getting there, making steps. So I think that's really the attractive thing about problem solving in science. Yeah, and and you said maybe not the complete answer. Is there ever a complete answer in science? Because I know this is debated, you know? It's like, oh, it's a theory right. of evolution. And it's like, well, yeah, but that is the terminology of how we say those such things. Mm-hmm. Right, no, it's uh, it's it's very true. It's never complete. Uh, it, in a way, it could never, our knowledge can never be complete uh, about I mean, unless it depends on the level of the question, like you could say, you know, what um, compounds does a particular flower make that are aromatic that attract insects? And you might discover completely everything that they do. And that might you might get to the point where there's really nothing new to discover with that very particular question. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but does that mean that other flowers that also attract pollinators aren't using other kind of compounds? Well, no, we don't know. We have to study that. And so there's always seems to be some, the, the answers are always incomplete. 
the knowledge we gain illuminate you're shining the, the flashlight you're illuminating parts of the room you haven't seen before but all that does is show you that there's even a bigger room than you realize or more rooms beyond it yeah. i really like that analogy that is yeah because you're just really that's just all it is it, like in the end science is it's relatively young right and yep. i mean we're just i love that shining light on things and seeing that there are more things to shine light upon and then uh creating those studies as we go yeah, that's yeah, I like I like looking at it that way just because I know people want that sort of, uh, I don't want to say mathematical answer, but that like binary, it's just like one or zero, like this is true, it's mm, false, right. there's no gray area, but that's just not, it's not how the natural world works or that's, our knowledge of it. That's right, that's mathematics works that way Yeah, because we have, we could do proofs. Uh-huh. There is no proof in science. There's evidence that supports or fails to support a hypothesis or a theory. But there's no proof. You don't prove something in science. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. So then rats. I know it's rats and then moved into pigeons and also uh, hermit crabs. What what was that spark? Like, I know you were working in the lab with sort of uh, with the people previously with rats. But what is it about rats that cognitively speaking are so fascinating because I saw that you said something along the lines of um, living animals were more interesting than dead humans when it comes to brain and cognition and things, which I think is, it's like, it's a really good point. I imagine it's vastly different. So what was it about these animals maybe specifically? And that was a tongue in cheek kind of thing. <laughs> uh-huh. Humans are very interesting and dead humans used to be alive and be very interesting uh, in the in their own right. Uh-huh. Uh, but to get your question about why rats, uh, it's funny. I have my in-laws are like studying rats. Like he's <laughs> a psychologist like, only studying rats, something simple like that. Why not humans? You know, uh-huh. what most people don't realize is that a rat, the, the brain of a rat, the processes that brain implements is vastly more complex than any AI or machine, um, thinking machine we've invented, any kind of computer. They, the, the even our most expensive and cutting edge, amazing technological advanced machines we have now, computers and, and algorithms and programs and all that, pale in comparison to the quantitative complexity of a rat brain, even of a fruit fly brain actually because you well you have to realize that every single neuron is a nonlinear processor it's not just a binary zero one that's we think of that with the action potential a neuron fires and it shoots and it tells the next cell okay i just fired and you use it passing on that information right from one cell in the network to the next neuron in the network that's the part that we can measure relatively easily but we've neuroscience has really found out that the intracellular processes, every single neuron is listening with dendrites. These are these little projections that come out of the neuron is listening to about a, a thousand or more other neurons and is gathering information from each one in a nonlinear fashion. So just if you think of that analogy, a computer operating is a, a linear operating machine. Each cell in a neural network is a nonlinear operating machine of vast complexity. Scale that up to the level of a fruit fly brain, thousands of neurons, a honeybee brain, or, or millions of neurons, like and trillions of neurons, like in a rat or a human brain, you start to realize 
there, there's so much we don't know, even just how a rat brain works. We, there's so much we don't know that is very much worth studying. So that's kind of one response I can give to your question. Another response I can give to your question is, well, why rats? Why not like primates? If they're more closely related to humans. Maybe their behavior is more human-like. What we fail to realize sometimes is that despite these differences that there are true, a, a macaque or a chimp would be much more closely related to a human and probably more similar psychologically than uh, than a rat would be to a human. At the same time, there's a vast amount of the psychology and cognition that these nerve, the brains produce of a rat and a human that's similar. In the same way that I have five fingers on my hand and I could grasp an object, this is the top of my water bottle, um, <laughs> and manipulate it. Um, you'll watch a squirrel or another type of rodent or a rat. They do the same thing. And the, the way that the hands work is functionally pretty similar. They don't have opposable thumbs, but in many other respects, they're grasping organs of five digits and there's some kind of coordinated process. There's a, um, a homology, as we call it there, meaning the way that the rat hand or a squirrel hand works and the way a human hand works, there's still a lot of similarities, despite some differences. That actually is true of the brains too. There are all these different parts of the brain, the human brain we know, the parts that do memory, like what we call the hippocampus, uh, and parts that do more decision-making and, and behavioral regulation, like your frontal cortex. Um, there's the visual cortex in the back, which is where all the information from the eyes initially goes and it gets processed. Auditory cortex. So all these parts, right? Cerebellum, that's like about motor control. You look at the rat brain, they have a hippocampus. They have a frontal cortex. They have a cerebellum. These, functionally, there's a lot of similarity. There's a lot more similarities and differences. And so if we want to study basic processes of, well, how does learning and memory work? How does... In, how do inferences work, like cog, like a um, causal reasoning type inference or a spatial inference? So I've been from A to B and I've gone from B to C and now I know how to go directly from A to C, even though I haven't traveled that route before. That's a spatial inference. How does the brain do that? You could study all these things in rats as well as you could do it in humans because essentially there's largely the same kind of processes. These are homologies. That, that is very interesting. Would it? Would you say it would be in any way easier or harder to study in rats versus humans? So I'm thinking about that, like that causal thread uh, sort of thought where do you almost, not to diminish the intellect of a rodent, a rat, say, but being that we have, I would assume, like emotions and a, a level in, with our uh, cognitive function that could maybe impact a study um, is is there sort of anything with that between the two where almost it's there's a little bit of a simplicity there versus humans? It's true. You're right, actually. And that's actually, I think, both the weakness and the strength of non-human animal work is that humans have this extra thing of language, shared culture. We build knowledge based on what we've accumulated. A rat or any non-human animal starts out in the world only knowing what it knows and only acquires understanding of the world through its own observations and observing other animals, other like other um, conspecifics, conspecifics, for example, doing their thing in, in the world, like in a social group. The rats can actually learn from each other to some degree, but they're not talking to each other. So there's this real severe lack of 
um, deep knowledge that's accumulated historically that humans have. So that means it's a weakness in the sense that the kinds of abilities they have will be diminished relative to what humans can show. But that's the strength. And that's where I really think it's the animal research is so valuable. Because if we're studying, let's say, and I like to study the things like in animals that are pushing the boundaries on what we thought animals were capable of doing in terms of their cognitive processes, like more high level stuff. I like to investigate those because I think this is where an animal research can be very valuable because when you're studying some kind of really advanced cognitive process in a human, well, you can ask the question, well, of course a human can do this kind of cognitive advanced process. Um, let's say episodic memory. Let me give you an example. So episodic memory is, for example, if I ask you, where were you yesterday afternoon? Did you go out or were you at home? Can you tell me now what, what you did yesterday afternoon? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, I was at home. And what did you do at home? Was anybody with you? Um, yeah, Amara was with me. I was. We were watching football on the couch. So Okay. Yeah. You have a memory of that. Specifically, you were on a couch. There was a place. You were doing something watching football. And and you can re- close your eyes and you can even picture that probably, re- revisit that memory. Absolutely. That's episodic memory. There's some people in the field of, of cognition, human people who study, we call them human researchers. We mean people <laughs> who study human cognition <laughs> as opposed to animal researchers. We don't mean little animals doing research, but people who study animals uh, <laughs> to understand them. So the human researchers, they, there are some that would say, yeah, animals really can't have episodic memory. Because they, the, in order to do that, you'd be, have to be able to ask them a direct question that requires language as a response. And you can't do that in an animal, um, for the most part. So, so when I'm... When I, hey, wait, sorry, can I pause saying, for a second? Go ahead, go ahead. For the most part. What does that mean? I, what I meant was that because there are certain um, species that have been used where they've been trained on certain aspects of human language, such as the um, sign language or lexicon boards, like a board of icons that chimpanzees and bonobos have been, and gorillas also have been studied. And then there's a, a parrot, a colleague of mine, Irene Pepperberg, studies parrot cognition using parrots that have been trained to both understand human speech to some degree and to respond with spoken words, English words. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so using those techniques, you can start to ask questions and get verbal responses. Although it's still, it's, it's at such a base level compared to what humans could do. Yeah. yeah. That's why I said for the most part, (laughs) it's a good aside. So, but the point I want to make is that the reason that, a rat could be so interesting and valuable as an animal to study is because this high level, like um, human type cognition that that many people think, well, only humans can do that. Or it's something that we know we could study easily in humans. To what degree is that process dependent on language versus we access it verbally, but language is not really necessary. It's actually an ability that predates the evolution of language. And so it might be found in non-humans. It's just that you you can't answer that question in a human because the human already has language. So what you need to do is ask the question of a species that doesn't have language. And if you see the same basic aspects of that 
cognitive process, this advanced cognitive process, then you could say, ah, oh, looks like language isn't necessary for this process to operate. It might be assisted by language, but is actually the precursor of it or exists in some form, even in a non-human. So the non-human research is necessary to ask those kind of questions. Yeah, I mean, it's removing, it's, it's a tighter control, I guess, because you have one less variable that would come down to the language and the passing on of knowledge that way. It's one of those things, there's someone, I don't remember his name, it was a while ago I saw it, but he is a blind YouTuber. And he was describing, like he talks about sort of what it's like to go through the world. He he does sort of tongue-in-cheek little things where he's going to buy a car and things. But he's like, what color is the car? And they're like, red. He's like, I've never seen red before. What's red? And they're like, well, the color of a tomato? And he's like, I've never seen a tomato. And it's like, you start to realize there's these senses language and the senses like really intertwine so well so i could so importantly like it's vital for something so i could imagine an animals you pluck out a little bit and then it's like okay now we can really sort of uh narrow down this intent and focus that's a great example yeah <laughs> um so yeah it's just I find all this very fascinating. This is the problem. I feel like we can completely go down all these rabbit holes because I find, I just find science infinitely fascinating. And then when it comes to cognition, like humans, animals, everything, that I know this is, this is going to be such a surface level on everything because I also want to talk about AHS and everything yep. else that you've done. Oh, so this, I know. Every podcast interview I've ever done is it's so unique, even though it touches on a lot of the same thing themes because uh -huh. you can go so far in each one. Yeah, definitely. So, so rats, pigeons, hermit crabs? Is that? I don't use the hermit crabs anymore. I, okay. During COVID, I kind of gave them away to as pets uh, because we just didn't have the staff to work with them anymore. But they were interesting. Uh, they're they're cute. I, I had a hermit crab as a pet when I was a kid. So I've always kind of liked hermit crabs. They're easy to keep in captivity. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I imagine though the brain is substantially smaller in them than the other animals. It's smaller and it's also, it's an arthropod, right? Like insects, crustaceans, spiders are all in the phylum arthropoda. And they have an independently evolved their brains compared to vertebrates like fish and mammals birds and reptiles so it's an independent evolution of a brain structure a brain system but there's a lot of similarities just because they have to function in a world so they, they they become designed to be similar in many ways not maybe to look similar but to the network diagrams when you start digging into them they actually realize there are a lot of similarities so when you say they evolved uh, independently what what is the, it's just like further down the chain of just evolution or what do you mean by that no, from a separate starting point, the, I mean, from the base starting point from about 550 million years ago, when all the modern phyla of life, life are divided, so there's the animal kingdom, and all the animals we know, when you classify them, there's like vertebrates, those are animals that have a vertebral column, um, and there are all these different type of invertebrate phyla there's a mollusks mollusca right so there's simple ones like clams all the way up to the complex ones like octopus that's a whole phylum that kind of evolved from this 550 million years ago kind of the big bang the cambrian explosion they call it the big bang of of all modern animals started then 
And so one line led to the the evolution of vertebrates. Another line led to the evolution of mollusks. Another line led to the evolution of arthropods, the insects, spiders, and crustaceans and all that. And so the actual brains in each of these types of, of phyla uh, evolved independently. They didn't start out with a creature that had a brain, and that's why everything else has brains, because they inherited it. They started out from a, a basal type of um, animal that only had the distributed neural network, like a nerve net. And then some of, as uh, you know, like early on in mollusca evolution, mollusks were now on their own path evolutionarily, uh, separated from the other phyla. All of a sudden, an animal uh, evolves where they have some kind of central organization to that neural net, a ganglion forms. And then that ganglion becomes more complex as evolution takes over. So it basically a brain gets built through the evolutionary process of natural selection. That brain getting built did it was independently in arthropods, vertebrates, and mollusks. Interesting. Yeah. And just for people, because I know we think uh, evolution, natural selection, I, I like the phrasing natural selection because it like sort of better, artic- for me, better articulates it. Could you sort of explain just in layman's terms is the basic of what natural selection is right so evolution just means change over time essentially and it's the process by which we think that life forms new species evolve and then over time speciate themselves to even more species and get more increasingly diverse what natural selection is is the mechanism or the the type of process that darwin had discovered that he proposed as the solution to how that happens and to this day, that's become the dominant view and has failed to be disconfirmed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's overwhelming evidence that this this universal process of biological change over time. And basically, it's a selection, um, a selection process for maybe a more fit species. Yeah. So the way to think about it is there there are three ingredients to natural selection. There's um, Phenotypic variation, meaning that any character trait, uh, height, um, skin color, eye color, a, be- a behavior, a, a, phys- a digestive process, anything, um, is a trait that varies. You can measure, take 100 individuals of that species, and you measure that trait, so let's say height. Some are tall, some are short, most are in the middle, so you get a bell curve distribution. So you have a phenotype that uh, that varies within a population, like height. You have differences in, all right, so the second part is that there is a genetic component, a a heritable component to that. So the tall people carry genes for being tall. The shortest people carry genes for being short. They're not maybe 100%. There's an environmental impact, a contribution too, but to some degree, there's some genetic contribution. So that's the second ingredient. The third ingredient is now in an environment some members, some levels of that phenotype are more uh, fit to that environment than others. Let's say tall people in a particular environment have a selective advantage, meaning they leave more progeny, than more offspring than shorter people on average. If you have that happening because of the environment for whatever reason, if you have that, then generation after generation, because the people with genes for being taller are going to leave more kids. They're going to be more genes for tallness It represented in each subsequent generation within that environment. That's how the environment is selecting for a particular trait. 
that has a genetic contribution. Yeah, it's so fascinating and makes perfect sense. And very broadly speaking, obviously, because there's so much more, uh, so many intricacies that would go into it, but the broad strokes yep. of it make perfect sense and why some animals are in some places and not in others. I think in New Zealand, there's flightless blind birds or something along those lines. It's It's like that wouldn't survive in most places because there's predators but if there's no natural predators then these uh these selections can happen and uh, continue right. on which is wild that's the key is that the environments can change either the environments themselves over time can change or the organisms a group of individuals might migrate to a different location like cave fish which originally came from fish that swim in streams somehow got stuck in a cave and the cave there's no light they lose the uh, ability to develop eyes over many, many, many generations. There was no need for it. So there's a select the selective pressure to keep eyes, any mutation that might arise that might damage the ability to, to develop eyes in a population of fish that live in a stream where there's light. They need those eyes to survive, to, to see predators and avoid them, to find food. But in a cave environment that's completely pitch dark all the time, there would no longer be a selective pressure on that. So you, the environment, they move into a different environment. And now you can get evolutionary change. Yeah, very fascinating. And that, that does sort of lead us in then to ancestral health and how you yes. found, um, like ancestral health, just like super broad, 30 second like description of what it is. Then sort of, I want to dive in a little deeper. The idea of ancestral health and the way, reason we use that term is because it, it emerged out of the paleo concept, like paleo diet mm -hmm. concept, but it's more broad because what we mean by it is that anything that's part of your ancestral history can influence what your health is going to be at any given time now. So typically we think of that as your evolutionary history. So we're humans. That's one part of it. We're also mammals. That's another way to look a uh, part of, of what shaped who we are and what how we thrive. Part of it is our individual development, like when I was conceived and born and, and grew up. That development during my own lifetime is part of my own ancestry, if you think of it that way, very broadly speaking. Mm -hmm. uh, also, ethnic groups, different ethnic groups have different accumulation of different kind of genes that are that had been selected based on a particular environment. Like, like think of light skin versus dark skin uh, based on, and, and with latitude, um, you know, in like Scandinavian versus Sub-Saharan African. Mm -hmm. That's evolutionary factors that drove those differences. Yeah. So then ancestral health being like, we are looking at all of these factors from our ancestry. And I like the localized looks. I hadn't really thought about that, but, but yeah, it makes perfect sense. But looking at those factors and the things that play in and then trying to, uh, maybe return to where we naturally are um, should be. That uh, yeah, so that's you're right. I, that's the second part of it is for the health part of it. Realizing that all of that ancestral states that we've gone through um, lead to our current health being um, impacted by the kind of environment we're in. So, when, and a simple example would be somebody who's lactose uh, intolerant. Who doesn't is not able to drink milk as an adult if they move to a scandinavian country and like let's say milk is always on the menu they're going to have digestive problems a lot of the time mm -hmm. um, that's because there's an evolutionary mismatch another important term between what their bodies optimize for 
based on their history uh, and what their current environment is. Another one might be people uh, of African-American, African-American, people of African heritage with darker skin living in northern latitudes have a tougher time um, turning, making vitamin D from sun exposure um, because the sun is at a, a weaker, a, a more of a steep angle and is not as efficient at producing, inducing the, the vitamin D production in the skin. So yeah. they tend to be more vitamin D deficient. And that's an evolutionary mismatch as well. Yeah. So, so you're the co-founder of the Ancestral Health uh, Symposium is sort of the, the broad uh, company, I guess, umbrella, I guess you'd say. Yeah, this is, we started as a symposium and then we formed a society that okay. it's, operates the symposium. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. So what brought you there then from maybe your research or what did you discover? What were the threads you started pulling when yeah. it brought you into this uh, area? Good question. So I actually was collaborating with Seth Roberts, the late Seth Roberts. He passed away a number of years ago. He was also a rat researcher at UC Berkeley, not UCLA, but UC Berkeley, not too far from here. And we started collaborating on some work. And he had this side interest of both self-experimentation and blogging. Uh, And so he would blog about um, books he's read. He'd blog about um, websites he's been reading about, like with human evolution and its relation to human health. And he started linking to and, and talking about on his blog, like Gary Taub's Good Calories, Bad Calories book, mm-hmm. which uh, I then read because he t- blogged about it. And linked to some other like paleo type websites, including the one by Mark Sisson, Mark's Daily Apple. Mm-hmm. This is before the Primal Blueprint book that Mark, his first publication came out. So I would, I started going to these websites and, and reading Gary Taub's book and reading about how low low um, carb, high fat diets, especially ketogenic diets seem to actually have a lot of health benefits. So I thought, huh, let's give this paleo and ketogenic diet approach a try. Just, I was curious. And so I tried it out and lo and behold, I actually lost weight. Although I was never heavy. I was always kind of a thin person, but I didn't realize around my midsection, I had some a little bit more punch than mm-hmm. I thought. And my face was actually, I realized in retrospect, it had already been a little bit, become a little puffier just over time, accumulating, you know, um, the systemic inflammation that a lot of people walk around with. And I, that kind of leaned out. I, I kind of lost all that extra body fat. Um, I started feeling a lot better. My mental energy was like always top and feeling amazing. I loved it. And the most, the clincher was, I put into remission a genetic disorder that I've had all my life. Really? So it's one that runs in my family. It's called, I'll say the word and I'll use the uh, acronym after that. The genetic disorder I have that runs in my family is called erythropoietic protoporphyria. EPP. We'll call it EPP. So EPP, a type of porphyria, is um it's a metabolic disorder i won't go into all the details of it but the symptoms are for epp in particular is very strong sun sensitivity i I had to avoid sunlight all my life you can go out for a little bit but you start feeling this graded response like in the exposed skin the face the hands especially you start feeling this burning and itching sensation and it's very different than a sunburn a sunburn like you touch it and you feel like oh yeah i got a sunburn this is like a constant 
it, it's almost like you've ever had a wind burn mm. where you had like a real strong wind exposure and it leaves this really like always consistent burning sensation on the skin. It feels a lot more like that. It's really uncomfortable. It went away about a year into doing this diet. It, it complete remission. I can go out in the sun. I had to be careful not to get a sunburn. <laughs> Uh, in fact, now I don't even get sunburns very often because I get sun on such a regular uh, a regular schedule that I'm I built up a base tolerance. Mm-hmm. So that clinched it for me. I could put an, a a genetic disorder into remission through diet. Yeah. Okay. Had to start a symposium about this. <laughs> uh-huh, definitely, and I'm sure the cognition too, being that that is your area. Like that is something that like for me, that was one of the first things I noticed. Like I wasn't yeah. having that afternoon crash. I was just much more, uh, I felt ment- more mentally acute. Like I could focus better. I could uh, retain knowledge better as well. Exactly. Yeah. Once you feel like that, you feel amazing again. You don't want to give that up. Yeah. It's your new baseline because we all like find our yeah. baseline. Like even if it was, we talked about working earlier and like if the baseline is I am depressed from eight to five and I want to get home and say, this is just normal. This is what I expect. But then when you get out and you look and you're like, I'll never go back there. And like the same with our health. It's like we're getting better sleep and we're, we're more fit. We're more like physically fit. We're more capable maybe of... Mm-hmm walking, running, jumping, throwing, catching, lifting things. Like it just sort of starts I'm more to capable now than I was in my thirties physically. Mm-hmm. Isn't that wild? Like and it, it's just, it's going back to nature. It's really going towards where the science is heading and evolving and learning and what we're, what we're uncovering, just like your, your everyday research that you're doing with the animals. But this is the, the human animal, the human, uh, human researcher, I guess, uh, like sort of part right. of you. Turn turn the experimental um, arrow on ourselves. Right? Uh-huh, definitely. <laughs> so then when you're yeah. like, I need to start this, um, mm-hmm. around what year did you start the symposium and sort of what were maybe the first steps there? Yeah, so I was I started this whole journey uh, in 2008. Mm-hmm. And that's when I read Good Calories, Bad Calories and started reading all these paleo and more nutritional, evolutionary nutrition blogs. 2009, I was hanging out with my good friend Brent Pottinger, who went on to get an MD from Johns Hopkins. But before that, he was also in this space, had a blog of his own and was paleo and low carb and blogging about these kinds of ideas. And so he and his brother went to UCLA. So he would come down and visit often and we would hang out. We went to this one symposium in 2009 at UCLA and it was called New Directions in Physiology. And we thought, oh, cool, they're going to talk more about how, you know, we could do use lifestyle factors to to help tweak our uh, our health. Uh, and and each talk that we saw, it would be the person talking about something where there's a real lifestyle factor with the kind of disease process they might be talking about, like sarcopenia or something like that, the the loss of muscle mass. And and they would have a genetic mouse model that like had, like they called him Mighty Mouse. So I remember one of the talks, it was by this guy who had this genetic mouse model that had a, a genetically modified to produce much more of the type two fast twitch muscle fiber. And so these mice gained weight, uh, gained muscle mass easily. And he was looking at, and he wanted to study the markers of like, what, what are the physiological, um, the, you know, chemistry and, and physiological um, inputs that pre- create that process. But of course, at the end of the talk, he's, their conclusions were, now we have new targets for, psychothera- for psychopharmacology, I mean, for pharmacology. Mm. 
new drugs to discover. And and Brent and I are looking at each other like, oh God, what the conclusion should be now we know why resistance training should be prescribed by doctors, you know, some heavy lifting uh, maybe once a week or twice a week that because now we know that it's targeting in a natural way, these systems that are there waiting for those stimulus inputs in a natural environment, in our ancestral environment, we had those kind of stimulus inputs. We were lifting, we were carrying, we were climbing. Um, and so instead of looking for drugs to solve the problems of poor lifestyle, we should use that knowledge of it's a lifestyle problem to to make a lifestyle fix and with all the health benefits and none of the bad side effects that drugs have. And so we thought to, we said to each other, you know, we should just have our own symposium where we have the same kind of talks about this new, you know, area of physiology and this new thing we know about. And at the end of the talk, it's like, oh, now we know how to fix this with lifestyle rather than now we know what to go up for with drugs. Yeah. And that was the genesis of the idea of the Ancestral Health Symposium, which we finally had at UCLA for the, the first one in 2011. What was that lead up to to make it come to life? Because that is a big undertaking. Any sort of event like that, and especially when um, it's you need you need the presenters, you need the people who are doing this research. And especially at that time too, it was harder to find. Like now, it's right. like ev everyone knows about like keto and low carb and all these things. But at that time, it it was yesterday in our evolution. But mm -hmm. it was it's like almost hard to fathom how outside of the box this was just a decade ago. It was. And I tried first to go through UCLA channels, like to there are certain groups on campus. I pitched the idea of let's have, can we, can I run a symposium and you guys can sponsor it, your group um, with me being a faculty here. That's about this. And I kept getting pushback, pushback, pushback. Oh, it's about bloggers. Cause we were talking about inviting bloggers, mm -hmm. you know, people from outside academia and they all like, no, nah, that I don't think that's really good. You know, it's not a good idea. You don't know what you're going to get. And I got all that pushback. So I decided I'll just rent a space on campus myself. I could rent it as an outside entity. We could do that. Um, a donor came in. One of Brent's uh, blog readers actually came in and said he'll front the money if we can rent the space. And the other thing is that Brent himself was actually very well connected. It was He was the Pied Piper. He sent, so he and I sat and came up with a list of the dream team. Oh yeah, like Rob Wolf, oh, Mark Sisson, you know, these kind of people to bring to the conference, uh, Chris Kresser and all these people who had started blogs already, and so, and uh, but uh, didn't even at the time have their books yet, a, a lot of these people, but they were starting with their blogs and they were becoming known, maybe some podcasts early early days. And we came up with like a list of 20 or 30 people and Lauren Gordain and people like this who had an academic publishing in this area. And Brent just went through and emailed everyone, said, we're planning to have a symposium. Would you want to come and speak? About 90% of the people said yes. We were like, whoa, within like two weeks, we had most of them. People were like, yeah, we're on board. Let's do it. Nice. And so we were amazed that we got such a turnout, such a big response. And so the planning ended up being pretty easy because we had all the people already agreeing. We had a space. We had uh, somebody helping uh, front the, the the upfront cost. And we, so we put it together. We had a big kickoff party for all the presenters at my house. It was funny because we we still have pictures somewhere. Uh, I think you can find them on the internet now of that first party when all these people were, most of them were meeting each other for the first time in person. 
Nice. And it was like in my backyard in my house. My house was so packed. It was like 60 people in my house. And my house is a small house. It was L.A. And so I remember one time having to go from the backyard to the front, uh, back of the house to the front of the house. It was easier to walk outside <laughs> to go in through through the mass would be too much. It was also our house is a shoeless house. All these shoes on the front steps, oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, traveling down the front steps. It was just, it was great. It was, there was this energy there. The conference itself was so much energy because all these people for the first time talking, sharing ideas, talking to each other, we've known each other on blogs and podcasts, but we're in person talking to each other, having these conversations, presenting work. I remember at one point, Tucker Max was actually there Mm -hmm. and he turned to me and says, you know, I've been to a lot of events. I've never seen an event with this kind of energy. This is next level shit. Like you got to bottle this. You have something here. Like it's like bottle that lightning and and do something with it. So that's when we we were initially were thinking it would just be a one off event, but it was because of the success um, and the the thirst and hunger for it that we decided let's try and do this every year or every other year. Yeah. What what would you say makes that? energy like i know the first one there is a magic to the first time you're meeting these people that you really respect online that you know so intimately well but you meet them face to face like that was like south by southwest for me like i've been in the brand development space for so long doing all these things and another team i was a part of we threw a party at south by southwest in 2010 11 something like that to like everyone could meet the team and blah 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 because there's there's a community there yeah. And meeting people for the first time just changes things. It's funny because we do so much online now. But like when you're in yeah. person, it's like, like, no, no, this is real. This is real. But in person, it's like, now this is real. I've noticed that too, even with the Web3 kind mm-hmm. of community, starting to meet people in the NFT space in real life. And like, there's that same, it's just like in the, the ancestral health paleo kind of communities when we first met. That's that, You're right. There's something magical extra dimensional about the in real life experience that you is not replicated you have these really rewarding relationships online mm-hmm. but the it's still it's an ancestral health kind of thing right it's not the same as in real life is like what our evolution expected us yeah absolutely do you think that what you've learned from ancestral health from the symposium do you think that can be applied to other areas? Because like you mentioned Web3 NFTs and notoriously, those conferences are not good. Like from everything I've heard, I don't know, maybe there's some that are, but I know certain ones, they're like, oh, we have 800 speakers. We have this, we have that. And I'm like, you and I know there's not 800 thoughtful, experienced people who should be up there speaking because there's a lot of different factors that are going into to right. all of this. Um, are there maybe some some learnings you have from your experience where you could maybe see that applied elsewhere to, to other verticals like web three. Yeah, I think so. I think what I'm actually very hopeful about with web three, because I think it's one of the best uh, than blockchain technology in general. I think what it's going to do, if what it promises to do is to enable distributed, um, not in real life, but online connections to be closer to what we expect uh, uh, from uh, in, in a real life perspective, from a real community of people that work together in real life. I think it's actually bringing web two doesn't really provide as much of that because mm-hmm. uh, it's so top down structured. But we know that 
natural human behavior evolved in these small egalitarian hunter-gatherer band societies. And so our evolved psychology and our social modules and everything operate best in a more egalitarian, playful, um, open context where, where things aren't all hidden behind paywalls and closed doors and boardrooms and everything. That's a more modern, that's a mismatch actually. And that causes a lot of harm in the world. I'm actually hopeful and I hear this kind of from a lot of people in the Web3 space that um, that the Web3 is actually, if anything, going to enable a larger networks of distributed people distributed over space and time to tap more into that more natural kind of dynamic that our minds expect. So that's what I'm hopeful about Web3 actually. Yeah, I find that very interesting. I never thought about it having almost like an evolutionary lean to it. Well, I think of human societies as being, so we talked about optimal. Did we talk about optimality before? I think a little bit. Um, uh, I'm not sure. I don't think not. optimality. Okay. I was talking about with a student earlier today. Okay. Maybe I'm <laughs> crossing my lines, but all right. So, uh, so we were in a very stable type of environment, social environment, a hunter gatherer band society, a small group of 20 to 40, 60 people that all know each other, all work on, solving the same problems of we got to raise our kids safely, move around safely, hunt and, and procure food uh, and have fun. And those kind of societies operated for at least 200,000 years of Homo sapiens existence. And then about 10,000 years ago, different parts of the planet of the world, um, you started getting this shift to a sedentary agricultural hierarchical system that's departed from there dramatically. And now that's what like our modern societies are like. We don't really have the kind of freedoms in our lives that, that a hunter-gatherer would have. Um, and Or the playful nature of the way we do day-to-day -day operations aren't in a playful way. In hunter-gatherer societies, they actually are. And so what I think with the Web3 is that it's now enabling that kind of, at all, a larger scale that we currently live in. We're going to be stuck living with this large scale society. But now I think, so I think what happens is we've optimized, I'm getting back to optimality, we've optimized over 200,000 years, evolution has optimized human band society and our mind working in that. There's this dramatic shift and now cultural evolution is now going through the process of, oh, that doesn't work, oh, that doesn't work, oh, that doesn't work, and getting better and better at finding things, solutions that work better. And this Web3 thing is actually one of those next phases of cultural evolution that might make the world a global economy start to work better yeah what are the things about it that you think that you see the potential in specifically i think because it's an open ledger uh is the basis of it that now it's going to be much harder to hide anonymously and anonymity there's going to be much more clear um um transparency mm -hmm. in the way things operate that's one of the critical things because in a small scale society things there's much more transparency and so you can evaluate like what your peers are doing and you can you know support or or not support them based on their actions are they going to be pro-social supporting society or anti-social and selfish this in in our modern society there's so much selfish behavior that that's enabled by non-transparency 
So I think that's one of the keys is that by being transparent, it's written on a blockchain, every transaction um, decisions that they're, they're searchable, viewable and open. So I think that's going to help keep people and entities accounted for, accountable for behavior so that they could be checked the way they could in an open society. Yeah. And hopefully I know there's a lot of with the SEC and other kind of entities in the US, for example, trying to figure out where to regulate the use of this technology. I think that the hopefully the evolutionary process will lead this all to a direction of a more libertarian type. Um, um, what do they call it? The uh, oh, I, I just just listened to a podcast uh, where they were talking about this, where it's um, oh gosh, and I'm blanking on the what I just wanted to say. The um, sorry, I'm pausing here. It's all good. Yeah, I was listening to the debate on the recent Bankless podcast between the SBC, SBC what is this, the guy's name that started, um, oh, no, I'm blanking on all. I just listened to it all the other day, too. Um, oh, what is it? I should just probably give up on this. It's not coming to me. It's all good. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's all good. Uh, yeah, sometimes I just have too many conflicting ideas and some are out-competing others. <laughs> but the idea was that the, um, that the, and I know they, that an example came up during this discussion on this podcast of, let's say that I, as an American citizen, want to send to some poor Iranian woman who is like struggling to survive under this regime there in, uh, in Iran, send her money. And I could do that with Web3, with blockchain. You could send crypto, cryptocurrency, unless it's regulated. The ideal would be that there isn't regulation on freedom of transaction between consenting individuals. I think that is what we need to protect. And I think that's the promise that blockchain can deliver. It tears down the barriers. It tears down the walls between societies, between borders, between nations, to allow people to be people and help each other. It can always allow people to hurt each other from distances too, but hopefully that's the kind of thing that will, there will be the old mechanisms of um, punishing people by not working with them anymore, ostracizing them. That's what worked in the old days. Hopefully that can work in the new days as well and other solutions too. But I think ultimately it's about this, the, the freedom to interact with others um, without some authoritarian middleman saying, no, you can't do that. You can't talk to them. You can't send them something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it does just, it breaks down the, the barriers, but, but like you said, depending on how it's regulated, that can really change things. If it's, uh, if it's taken in certain directions. Yeah. It's very interesting. And I can't like, we encountered each other through community through like other other people like james has been on the show james costa and yeah um so we encountered each other through that how have and you joel reed uh-huh yeah yeah because i'm i'm uh, i hold a couple of clubby bears and nice. i also hold some of uh, james costa's uh, clubhouse archive uh, tokens uh -huh. i've been supporting big supporters of them big fans of their what they're building yeah and so it's it's great i wanted to talk sort of about community there because i know you guys have like a tight-knit community of i want to say like 
it, this is this might sound wrong, but like high powered people, like I consider you, James, Joel, like you are high performers, driven, like you have done a lot, and I think that's one of the things that's really like it's beautiful to see the. Uh, I feel like how I'm saying this is not going to come across right at all, but the grouping of people together, finding like-minded individuals, finding people who really can help one another because we have deep skill sets, deep, rich skill sets and experience, but diverse. I mean, James is in fashion. Like that is a very far uh, space from where you are in academia, but there's still that, that overlap. Yeah, and I think you're right. We're like-minded, passionate about certain things, curious, mm-hmm. uh, exploratory. I think that's right now what's attracted a lot of the Web3, like the cryptocurrency uh, folks, DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, and um, the NFT community, the various NFT communities, and the artists. That's the other thing I'm passionate about is this, to see what the technology of blockchain with and NFTs in particular can provide artists, which is like the first time ever an artist could get royalties on their own work um, and for secondary, third, tertiary sales of their work. That that idea just is mind blowing to me and 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 and, and exciting, mm-hmm. right? So it's fun to see that we're all just kind of finding each other um, in the same way that I started finding people in the paleo world back in ancestral health world back in the day. It's the same kind of thing going on now with the Web3 and NFTs, which is fun because now this my two worlds intersect. Uh-huh. My animal cognition research and now the NFT space actually have intersected for me personally. Yeah. <laughs> which is exciting. Yeah. So that like you have a project, pigeons, NFTs. Could you just sort of uh, explain that just a little bit? <laughs> yeah, it, it's really it's just one of those serendipitous things. Uh-huh. Like all the great things in life is due to serendipity, just an accidental happening. So it was a year ago, it was in May 2021. Um, so, so it was about, actually, let me just go back. So summer of 2021 is when I started really learning about NFTs and getting excited by them and starting to collect a little bit, uh, especially on Tezos, because there's a lot of real funky kind of fun artists uh, on that blockchain um and but also i actually collected on if you see this shirt nice. i collected this it was this is an nft actually that i ma- i made a shirt from from <laughs> uh debbie T- uh, Taya. it's one of the human jpeg i got this one early on uh, nice. it says pigeons are punk rock doves i like that because <laughs> <laughs> you know, the punks and then pigeons so um it was just a fun vibe and so i started like you know, listen to podcasts and going on Twitter. I've been on Twitter a long time, but that's where I discovered all this NFT space was a uh, community was, was hanging out and could find out about different projects and start learning and, and learning more about it. And, and I was talking about this in, to my students, my grad students back in like September a year ago. And I was saying, and I made this little offhand comment, like, oh, it would be fun if, like, we can have our pigeons make art and then we can mint them as NFTs and you know, sell them. And one of my students turned to me and says, and got her phone out. It's like, uh, I want to show you something. <laughs> she says, actually, one of our pigeons made art a few months ago. So it turned out, so the way we run our pigeon experiments, we put a pigeon into a box 
you know, about this big. And there's a touch screen on the front of the box. And we present visual stimuli. And let's say we have a discrimination, like pack the green one, not the red one, and you get a food reward, stuff like that. And that's our basic behavioral training procedure. And we usually put a pigeon in a box. They have their programmed procedure that we give them. At the end of the behavioral task for that session, the program closes down and it just gives them a blank black screen. Well, somehow this pigeon at the end of its session closed out that program, pulled up paint and actually made markings and uh, some kind of visual stuff on the screen. <laughs> so the student saw this. She went to open the, the box to get the pigeon out. She saw this artwork on the screen on MS Paint and she's like, that pigeon just did that. <laughs> so she got a picture of it, showed me on her phone. And I was like, oh, my God, that's when my, the, the idea hit me. We actually can pivot to start a project in my lab to study how pigeons can make art and 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 what can they do with it? Like, what what can it tell us about human art versus uh, pigeon making art? Are there similarities or differences? We could start a whole project multiple experiments a long you know term project to start exploring that we've and we started that at the same time the artworks that they produce we can curate some of them so that nice looking ones we could actually mint as nfts and sell them where a hundred percent of the proceeds go back into supporting the animal research in the lab so it's all just none of it goes to me none of it goes to other people it goes to supporting the research itself Nice. And that way, the pigeons are kind of helping to participate in the process of doing research and and getting uh, the money that helps keep the pigeon lab expenses covered and all that. Yeah, so that was wild. the idea. <laughs> it's a it was, closed it loop. Was ex exactly, and and it's so and it's and the thing is like that's what Web three blockchain type technology is perfect for. That's the kind of need case, just like with artists getting support for their work rather than waiting till they're dead before the stuff makes money uh, and dying penniless. I mean, I'm exaggerating. Not most artists don't aren't that put out by it, but still, it's not easy for artists to make it. Yeah. Well, it's the same is true for scientists, especially science that is not the cutting edge, biggest, sexiest tool. That gets usually the most funding from the big uh, federal agencies. My kind of research uses kind of old school technology, but we're asking cutting edge questions about the mind of an animal. And so it's harder to get funding for that. So I thought this is a perfect use case of, of the blockchain technology. Yeah, I really like that. Yeah, you're and just sort of even to call back to the beginning, you're shining a light on things that are giving us more things to shine a light on. So it might not be the, the area where money is being thrown at because it's not like, oh, we want to know right. about this thing to see what else we can learn. It's like, we want to know X, Y, Z. Here's a bunch of money. Like this is, it's an exploratory um, endeavor. So yeah, that's, that is very cool. I love how it's the closed loop. Are there some things you've started to learn with regards to art versus like pigeons versus humans or it's, is it still too early? Sort of where are you, where are you in that process? It's still very early days, but we have already kind of got some glimpses. One thing we see is that there tend to be individual differences. So we have about 23 pigeons that have now gone through and given the opportunity to make art on many occasions. And we see that for the pigeons that have done more than just a few, some of the pigeons aren't that motivated. They might have made a few and then they kind of never really do anything. And we don't feed them for doing this. We don't give them reinforcement. They get their food 
from doing other experiments. This is just extra on the side. <laughs> and so it's just up to them if they're interested to engage. And if they want a side hustle. Just, <laughs> basically, yeah. Some don't. They don't really they're not too interested in it. So, mm -hmm. okay, they haven't really done much, but there are others that have like 20, 30, 40 pieces that they've done, like 40 different sessions where each session they've created something. And some of them, and for the ones that are more prolific, some of them tend to pack a lot of bursts in like a certain area and a lot of bursts in a certain area. And there are others that are a little bit more kind of, they're distributed. And another thing we've seen is that one of our pigeons is in a task where the main one another he's in two experiments, the, the different experiment and then this art experiment. In the other experiment, the point of the, the experiment is to peck really fast to um, to get a, a target. So it's a reaction time experiment. We then take that same bird after it's done with that reaction time experiment session and we just give it the blank canvas and a couple of tools that are open already. And it'll make a few pecks, stands back, make a few more pecks, stands back. It's it's more like this, op, you know, it makes some engagement, some, it makes some strokes, stands back, it evaluates, goes back in and does something else. Like the way an artist kind of works. And I was talking to Pindar Van Arman, who made BitGans, famous for all that kind of um, generative AI um, kind of artwork, and talking to him about that. And he said, you know, that's very much like what, Paul Clay, the famous painter from the early 20th century, said that the artistic process involves is this kind of uh, act, observe, um, critique, go back, act some more, that kind of feedback loop. And we see that in some of our pigeons when we're looking at video footage we've collected. And it's, it's really fascinating. That, yeah, that is so fascinating. Like, I... So many questions I could ask. Like, I just, just one more thing, so I don't want to take too much of your time, but are you almost seeing, or I guess it's early, but the ones who've done a bunch of pieces, are you seeing maybe a, a growth? Like, are you seeing a change from piece to piece where there's anything that they're taking from each experience? And again, I know it's very early, so it's there's not a ton of data, but. That's a good question, but right now I honestly can't answer that. Oh, yeah. I don't know if there is a lot of variability day to day, even within a particular bird. I'm not sure if I've seen too much real a growth, as you would put it, like a, a directional kind of change. Uh -huh. um, there's definitely stochastic change, mm -hmm. but I think it's at this point, I can't say it's more than stochastic or, or just kind of like the random fluctuations in, in their how much they want to engage on a given day. Uh -huh. But one of the things we do want to do is we, there's so many things we want to do. Gosh, we have a ton of a list a mile <laughs> long. One of the things we really want to do is because when you think about human development, when kids start, you know, I have had two, two kids. So I knew when they were like a year, year and a half, you give them a crayon and, and it's just like, you know, scribbling on something. By the time they're about three or four, you know, then they start making little face, like a face, a two eyes, like a circle, two eyes, and a line. And that's like a person, uh -huh. right? Everything's like real basic. But they're already they're gaining that representational capacity for their art um, rather than just purely abstract or random. We want to see if we can train pigeons to copy from an image. Real, you know, for example, real basic, like if we give them a line like this on the screen and then there's a canvas, so the image and then the canvas, and we reward them for making lines 
and not for doing anything else? Will they start to learn that when they see a line to do that? And then we turn the line this way, what would they do? Will they automatically generate, generalize and do this? Is there any copy paste <laughs> uh, kind of idea in the uh -huh. pigeon? Like, can they learn to do that? And once you get them, if we can do that, if we can get them to basically do some kind of copying influenced by the image, then you can give them a more complex image and see what do they do spontaneously? Will they start to see, pick up on many of these elements in this picture and, and recreate it? That is, can they sketch? Yeah. So there's just so many kinds of questions that we can ask of art in pigeons. Absolutely. Yeah, this is, that is so fascinating. This has been such a enlightening and fascinating conversation, but I don't want to take uh, any more of your time. I feel like we'll have to chat again, whether it's maybe one day in person, we'd make that happen, but um, there's so much to talk to, yeah. about. Yeah, I find all of this endlessly fascinating, but where should we send people to, I don't even know what would be best for you, follow along, check out the NFT project, a little bit of everything, whatever, whatever works best for you. Okay, uh, I'll just give two things then there's my laboratory research website mm -hmm. which is actually it's called pigeon rat psych.ucla.edu and if you can't remember that or didn't scribble that down just google aaron blazedell my name and that'll be the first that's always the first link that comes up is that my lab website so that's easy to find but the other ones for this pigeon project specifically we came up with a site pigeonart.xyz. Perfect. So that's where we talk about this project. We also have a link to a place where you can go and mint your own. So we have a bunch of the paintings, digital artworks already available. And uh, so you can go to that pigeonart.xyz and there's a mint site there that you can then click on that. It'll take you to, it's actually pigeon, I wrote it down because I can never remember, pigeonart.net, N-E-T, is where it'll, the mint site will be. But you can get to there from pigeonart.xyz. Take a look, mint one. Perfect. Support a pigeon. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> but yeah, thanks Oh, again. we do, and um, I'm sorry, before we close out, I, another goal of this we're going to do this soon is to reach out to zoos and animal wildlife uh, shelters or places like that and once we have the app that we've created for allowing pigeons to do the artwork of ready to share we want to share it with zoos and other like nonprofits involved with animal welfare um and animal endangered animals and things like that to allow them to use it with their animals to then generate art that they could sell to support them like a zoo imagine a zoo supporting their panda bear exhibit by the pandas making art and then people can buy that uh things like that raise awareness so we're hoping that that's one of the the drives we want to get the, if we can get the funding for the project now then we can develop that app to the point where we can make it available for the wider world yeah very interesting and even I'm sure this is the part of even the webcam just kicking on and you're then able to, if if they're open, to then analyze data. I know it's like, it's not like controlled studies, but you would have, there would be more data for people to, to look into from different animals, different regions, different times of day, whatever it is. It's That's right. very fascinating. Oh, yeah, excellent. Er, well, this was a lot of fun. Actually, one second. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, actually, here, hold on. Oh. Here, wait, let me switch the Hi. camera over to Amara because she has a question. I was actually curious. Uh, do the pigeons have any color preferences? Interesting. Here, I'm going to switch it to the we... FaceTime there for you. Oh, okay. So I think you might be able to see her now. Hello. 
Yes, I do. Okay. Hey there. Nice to meet oh. you. <laughs> nice to meet you too. Uh, color preferences. We haven't studied that yet, and we haven't systematically given them choices for colors yet. That's what, another thing we want to do is is give them load more of the choices onto the pigeon and off of the app that we've developed. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I was just curious because I know that like humans, we have our own color theory and everything. So I was just curious if there was a proclivity toward like brown or green for trees or something like, I don't know, very naive thoughts, but yeah, just curious. Well, <laughs> pigeons are rock doves. That's the like the actual like we call them pigeons, but in they're from the Mediterranean region. And oh, nice. the typical term for them is a rock dove. So then because your shirt's they even nest, funnier. <laughs> which is why, that's why I call it pigeons are punk rock doves. I love it. That's much more of a play on words there. But because they're cliff nesters. Oh, okay. And that's why they poop on statues and sit on statues and, and on buildings. Because they're, we made, we designed all these cliffs and the pigeons are like, oh, we'll move right in. Right. So I don't know about trees as much as maybe gray stone. Yeah, maybe that would be prefer. interesting. Yeah, varying shades of gray, maybe. <laughs> you maybe. could have 50 shades of gray uh, pigeon collection, possibly. <laughs> yeah. Although I have to tell you, pigeons, uh, like most birds, are pentachromatic. What does that mean? It means they have five, they break the visible light spectrum into five different colors. Oh, interesting. I didn't know yeah. that. Okay. We're trichromatic, right? Like We have three primary colors, red, green, blue. Yeah, red, green, blue. And then we create all the other color space out of mixtures of that. Right. So pigeons Ooh. actually have five. So we don't we can't even imagine what their world color world looks like. Really. It's gonna look like an acid trip. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you know that then? That is such a sorry, I'm gonna pop the camera back over here just sure, sure. sure. It's from the physiology. We know like so example for example, in primate eyes in the retina. They're in the cones, which are the the, the color-sensitive cells. There are three types. There's the one that maximally responds to light in the red wavelength. There's another one that's maximally sensitive to light in the green wavelength, and a third in the blue wavelength. So that we know that, and we in people who study the cone cells of birds, like pigeons and other birds it's there are five different types that are, there's a maximum tuning to five there are five different frequencies each one is maximally tuned to one of those five that's wild that's so cool <laughs> yeah <laughs> we're gonna have Again, psychedelic we pigeons we have a whole nother <laughs> podcast on psychedelic pigeons i love it <laughs> there you go i want to thank aaron for joining me on this episode I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. I was geeking out a little bit on the, the science of things. And uh, over there, what are you thinking, Amara? Did you have fun? Yes, Silence. I had lots of yeah. fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just looking at the camera for dramatic effect. No, I had a lot of fun. I had so many questions about the pigeons making art. Uh -huh. I was like... <gasps> I want to know all about their process and how they feel about it and what their motivation is. <laughs> it's it's a really neat premise, though. And I mean, you know me. About their well, motivation. Yeah. I've studied so... art history for forever, so uh -huh. yeah, it definitely was. Uh, it struck a little something in me. I don't know. It's very interesting. Yeah, and, very fascinating. And we could talk about so much more. That, yeah. Like I definitely think whenever we get out that direction, we're going to have to grab coffee or dinner with them and just. Uh, Pick his brain a little bit more if he's up for it. That was for just, sure. That was I had very like fun. a million different questions. And then I was like, okay, don't like harass the poor man. So. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, anyway, 
Thanks again for tuning in, uh, for watching the show. If you like the episode, give it a thumbs up, hit that little subscribe button. And if you share it, it, it means a lot. But I think with that, we will wrap. And she is about to sneeze. No. Sneeze or yawn? What is happening? Anyway. I'm experiencing something. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> this, is this has been started now. I'm Jeff Saris. This is Amara Andrew. Hi. <laughs> And we will see you next time. Hi. Bless you. <laughs> Thank you.